I'm Robert Puente, and you are listening to the Water Values Podcast. The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Xylem, let's solve water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By Trinix, trust in what's next. By Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. By Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. And by Intera, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. This is session 230. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you for joining me. Well, I hope everyone's doing great as pitchers and catchers get ready to report for spring training. Can't you just feel it? The Seattle Mariners, it's going to be their year this year. I can feel it. Uh, <laughs> we have a great show uh, and a little bit of a unique show for you today. Uh, as many of you know, my law firm, Denton's, runs the Smart Cities and Connected Communities Think Tank. And as part of that think tank, we bring together great minds in the industry to discuss important topics and recently hosted a panel discussion on water technology. My colleague Linda Willard hosted the panel, which consisted of several fabulous panelists, including Wayne Griffith, now the acting COO at DC Water, Christine Boyle, Vice President of Business Incubation at Xylem, and Ben Grumbles, the Executive Director of the Environmental Council of the States. And then I was on the panel as well. Uh, it was a tremendous honor to share that mic with Wayne, Christine, Ben, and Linda, and I hope you enjoy hearing this, these uh, diverse perspectives on water and technological innovation. Wayne, Christine, Ben, and of course, Linda did an amazing job during the panel. They really did a super job uh, describing how technology is used, how it benefits customers, how it makes operations more efficient. It was just, it was just tremendous being on the panel with those great minds. Well, as you know, at the top of the show, we always say thank you to our awesome sponsors, uh, sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for the 2023 season include Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, Trinix, Mentor APM, Woodard & Curran, and Intera. That, my friends, is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry thought leadership and education. Thank you all, and I'd like for you, the listener, to please do me a favor if you work for or with any of those sponsors, please thank your boss, thank your contact at the sponsor firm, and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple little note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know that you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It'd be greatly appreciated and, of course, helps others find out about the podcast. And also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Yes, subscriptions, those are really important. Now it's time for the main event, so I'm going to flip it to Linda Willard to kick off the panel discussion with Wayne Griffith, Christine Boyle, Ben Grumbles, and myself. So let's get that water flowing. So let's get started. I'm going to start, I'm going to start kind of one by one with each of the panelists, and then we'll have sort of meet together 
halfway through the program and have more of a roundtable on kind of the big overarching issues. Um, but Wayne, Wayne Griffith, I want to start with you and um, and really kind of introduce um, our listeners and our, our viewers to what you're doing at DC Water and um, and kind of some of the innovations that are going on. Um, and I know when I, I pick up the paper or listen to NPR or whatever, the news about water tends to be really terrifying. You know, either we have most recently the, the crisis that happened in, in Jackson. Um, everyone's familiar with Flint. There are climate change issues. There are cyber issues, all sorts of, I feel like, things coming <laughs> at the water sector. And at the same time, um, you have kind of infrastructure that's aging. Uh, and you have, you know, customer, you have equity issues, all sorts of things. Um, and, and as the chief officer for strategy of DC Water, I just want to get a better sense of how kind of you put all these, uh, you know, kind of regular maintenance issues, as well as these really big issues that, that are, are, are challenges that are facing the water industry. How do you prioritize those? And I'd like to hear a little more about um, DC's five-year strategic plan, Blueprint, uh, blueprint um, 2.0, 2.0, so. Great, thanks, Linda. And uh, thank you for uh, the opportunity to participate. I th uh, on behalf of our CEO, uh, David Gaddis, and our executive team, this is, uh, we're, we're pleased to be able to participate and, and, and support this effort and raise the awareness of, of water uh, in in society, as you drink your glass of water, fantastic. Um, uh, you, you know, we have a tagline uh, around water is life. So as we think about the challenges, um, certainly that gives us uh, a keen perspective um, to to think about those challenges and and think about how to prioritize uh, the short term, uh, ensuring that every day. We're, we're delivering those services, whether it's drinking water or or clean water to the Potomac, uh, but also as you as you uh, mentioned, the longer term uh, issues that that uh, that we need to face. And um, th there there are three things that come to mind uh, when when you put those challenges out in front of us. Uh, the one is is I believe leadership, um, and and the the ability of the leadership to to uh, guide the organization, understand the needs of the community, um, understand the needs of the infrastructure to, to maintain those services, I think is, is paramount. Um, the second one, and you, you made reference to it, is around our strategy. Uh, and <clears throat> having the ability to step back and frame that strategy uh, so that we are uh, balancing the needs of today with the anticipated needs of the future. And I think that that's what our strategy helps us do, not only for five years, but also, you know, looking out beyond the five-year period is, is certainly many of these issues uh, won't be, we won't be able to address them in five years. They're going to continue on for 15, 20 years in order for us to, you know, mobilize the, the kinds of solutions that we would need. Um, and, and the Blueprint 2.0, I believe, is somewhat unique to help us, as you say, prioritize those things. Um, we, we developed the Blueprint 2.0 around what we framed as organizational imperatives. Uh, and those imperatives are, are interconnected as we, as we look at them. Uh, 
Uh, we use the word imperative because there's an urgency here. Um, the, the, the challenges that we're facing require uh, urgent action uh, for us to address. Um, and, and there needs to be a continued focus on, on these areas, these imperatives. So the imperatives being healthy, safe, and well, there are five of them, healthy, safe, and well, uh, re, re, uh, uh, resilient, reliable, sustainable, and equitable. And, and what's, I believe, unique, uh, Linda, in the framing of those imperatives, it's, it's not what we need to do as an organization, but it helps us understand why we need to be doing these things and what the benefit is to the community. So it's really framed around the benefits and keeping an eye on what it is that we do, ensuring that we're benefiting the community. And I think that that's unique. So that's the second item is around the strategy and ensuring that we have that roadmap and we have that foundation and framework to keep us uh, grounded day to day, year to year on what is important for the community. And then the third um, the third item that I, that I wanna raise that I think is important or as, it, as it relates to risk and as it relates to how we prioritize and address those risks, it's around uh, enterprise risk management. And so really uh, elevating much of what is being done at the business unit level and giving visibility at the executive level as to what many of the risks are that we're, that we're faced with and ensuring that, that at the executive level, at the leadership level, we were able to uh, guide efforts, uh, resource efforts to help address risks, not only to reduce the risk, but in some cases, take advantage of the opportunities that risks uh, often uh, bring forward. So I think that those are kind of the keys, and I, I think that that has really helped us, uh, as you say, prioritize uh, how we're deploying staff, how we're recruiting talent uh, in order to address some of those needs, how we're inve investing in the renewal of the infrastructure, uh, because all those factors are, are key to ensuring that we're delivering a reliable service to, to the customer. So I hope that uh, gave you some insight. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, much appreciated. I just want to expand upon um, the community and not only the, the community that you serve, you're in customers and, and people, but um, your 1,200 employees um, and your suppliers. I, I know uh, DC Water is not only on the forefront um, from a, a technological perspective, but also it's a very, you know, kind of values um, the community it serves, as well as the people it serves. So I, I just want to touch on some of the things DC Water is doing with respect to maybe customer assistance programs. And then also, if you want to talk about workforce development as well, if we have time, that would be great too. So yeah, great, great, uh, great points. And, and certainly at the forefront of, of, you know, how we operate and how we leverage our, our talent uh, again, for the benefit of the community. So around the customer assistance programs, we, we've we recognized, particularly through the pandemic, the, the pressures that the community faces around, uh, around drinking water, particularly. Uh, and, and certainly um, the, the, the economic impact that 
uh, events like like the uh, the pandemic brought on the community. So there were a number of things that we 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 mobilized to address uh, those issues. Uh, number one, we were we were the first uh, water utility to discontinue disconnects, uh, which is which is integral to the sustainability of our business. So we we discontinued the disconnects, and then we also um, uh, ramped up the reconnection of of the disconnects. So. Again, understanding the the vitality of having a water supply to households that um, that that didn't have a means to 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 pay for those services uh, was a very important way for us to help respond to this very critical health emergency for the community. And and then around the customer assistance programs, there were a number of of efforts to bring funding. Uh, on an emergency basis to help customers with their with their bills and uh, and and to, and to bring additional assistance, uh, we established a, a DC Cares program where we were uh, offering one time um, uh, bill reduction or or bill reconciliations for customers that that had that were disadvantaged. Uh, we've established a number of. I believe very aggressive customer assistance programs, not only looking at uh, individual resident residents, but also looking at multifamily um, uh, dwellings. So, you know, to to provide um, uh, assistance to uh, to customers who don't have a direct commercial relationship with DC Water, uh, many of the multifamily residents. Um, uh, we, we have a, a commercial arrangement with the, the multifamily tenant, uh, but not the direct customer. And so we, we expanded our customer assistance program to uh, better address the needs of, of the, the renting, the rental community uh, within, within the district. And, and we have a, a number of uh, additional customer assistance programs. The, the one thing that we, we have really been proactive, Linda, in, in trying to promote is we're really here, and I know that it's a soundbite, but we're here to help. And we want to we want customers who perhaps have challenges to reach out proactively to us, and we've been proactively reaching out to them uh, to to work and understand what their needs are, so that we can apply uh, the number of assistance programs that we have access to. So the 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 programs like LIWAP. Uh, that that uh, is is funding that's available that we want customers to to take advantage of uh, and and make them aware of that assistance that they may not otherwise be be aware of. Um, from a the, the other the other component that you had mentioned around business development uh, is that um, you know we we have uh, tremendous. Infrastructure renewal needs, as you can imagine, with with aging infrastructure, and that requires um, the the bringing together in partnerships with local contractors, uh, with with local with local engineering firms uh, that can really help us deliver on the needs of of renewing our infrastructure, and so we continually look for ways to give. Uh, small uh, disadvantaged businesses opportunities to work closely with with DC Water uh, and and framing our projects so that they can 
best respond to those projects and, and help us deliver, deliver on those projects. Thank you so much. In the interest of time, I'm going to segue over, but we're going to revisit when all four panelists come on um, after this first half. So I'm going to turn, thank you, Wayne, thank to you, Linda. Ben Grumbles, and um, we're going to talk a little bit about ECOS and, and state and federal policy and innovation and, and all sorts of things. Um, so Ben, you have a unique vantage point when it comes to water policy and um, having served both at the federal um, and at the state level, and now kind of overseeing both of those things. And, and there, there tends to be, and this is partially a constitutional law question. I mean, we're, we're, many of us are lawyers here. And so we delving into that issue, but the, the pull between the federal statutes, the Clean Water Act, Safe Drinking Water Act, and implementing those, and yet the flexibility of the state's you know, the individual state departments of the environment that are, they're implementing those laws. Um, how, what do you think is the ideal balance? Because often, you know, the states, they're at odds, but um, if you could just speak a little bit to that, and you're now, you've, you've served two very distinct states, Maryland, Arizona, and you're now overseeing all the states and if you the territories in DC. So if you could just speak a little bit to that, um, flexibility versus the need to enforce both of these laws. Great. Thanks, Linda. Uh, it's great to be part of the discussion. Uh, let me just say that when it comes to water, uh, we really do need uh, national standards, but also neighborhood solutions. And so finding that balance of having uh, national standards for clean and safe and fishable and swimmable uh, and healthy uh, are important, uh, but will fail if uh, they're all implemented from the top down at the federal level from distant regulators or, or from Congress. It, it really needs to be uh, states and localities and stakeholders in the private sector and community groups and citizen groups really helping to drive the ball. So the the balance uh, question has been asked and debated. And, you know, October 18th last month was the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act, the Federal Clean Water Act. Uh, and that has been a bold and very successful effort at cooperative federalism. Uh, the states really run the uh, regulatory programs. In fact, over 90% of the environmental laws that federal environmental laws that can be delegated to the states are uh, implemented, administered, and enforced by the states. But when it comes to the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act, there is a need for national standards, national emphasis on science and technology, uh, national guidelines and priorities on enforcement, um, but, but allowing the states to work. And, and as you know very well, uh, water and, and pollution don't respect political boundaries. So when it comes to the Mississippi River Basin, draining 40% of the continental U.S. or the Chesapeake Bay, seven states and the District of Columbia all involved, it requires some federal support, not just for the monitoring and 
and uh, report cards, but also an interstate umpire to step in from time to time. And really also federal support in driving the technology innovations and strategies. And so an area for flexibility, which is needed now more than ever, is giving, uh, providing the regulatory space for innovation to get to the results. It would be performance-based and results-oriented. And that requires trust and requires different arrangements. But that, that balance question is a very, these are incredibly amazingly challenging times and, and, and hopeful times given the $50 billion in the bipartisan infrastructure law, the funding through the American Rescue Plan, the uh, reawakening based on the pandemic and the economic crisis to really put investments because the, the, the saying that WEF uh, coined uh, in the early 2000s, water is life and infrastructure makes it happen and money and people and coordination uh, are going to help deliver the ball. So, so that's, um, that's what ECOS is focusing on is getting the, the states together and make sure that state perspectives are very much integrated into uh, federal and also local decision-making. Thank you. That's a really great way to bring everything together. Um, I want to look back as well as look forward and kind of, um, you know, you mentioned the the unprecedented or high level of funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law for water infrastructure. Um, but, you know, from all I've heard, it's never going to be enough. You know, there's not really a dollar. You can't solve all the world's or all the country's water woes with with money alone. What sort of innovative policies or kind of forward thinking, whether it be in, in mitigation, what, what kinds of new things are you, you seeing at ECOS? Maybe, you know, states are, are the areas of experimentation. So are there certain states or examples or even, even from your experience in Maryland or in yeah. Arizona, are there certain things, innovative approaches to water policy that you've well, seen? Yeah, like, like, like the whole nation, every state continues to, to struggle with finding the right interplay between water quality and water quantity, between upstream and downstream. Uh, states uh, like uh, the federal government, like a lot of um, enlightened uh, companies and NGOs are increasingly seeing the need to think beyond the pipe, beyond the fence line of the wastewater treatment plant or the drinking water facility and look upstream, whether it's called source water protection under the Safe Drinking Water Act or uh, watershed protection and nature-based solutions upstream in a Clean Water Act regulatory context, you can find much more cost-effective solutions. So you're seeing an unprecedented level of investment in states on stream bank and on terracing and working with agriculture and with forestry to um, invest in the green infrastructure. So over the last decade and a half, the nation has really awakened to the need for not just the gray infrastructure, the durable hardened infrastructure systems to protect and manage water 
quality and quantity, but also the green infrastructure, uh, the wetlands, the swales, the green roofs, the forests. That requires not only money, but it requires uh, monitoring, tracking, and accountability uh, so that when you invest in trees, and it's going to take 10 years before you see some of the best management practices really deliver all of the environmental benefits of, of reducing the nutrients and sediments upstream and in the watershed, you know, you've got you've to have a focus on maintenance and operation and also accountability. So there are a lot of states who are really uh, embracing the, the uh, and just yesterday, the, the White House announced as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, $40 billion, $40 billion going out to the states and NGOs and also the $50 billion in the bipartisan infrastructure law just for water, wastewater, drinking water, healthy water, lead pipe removal. But just yesterday, they announced a, a, a national focus and states are going to need to be in the lead on that with the private sector on nature-based solutions to get the cleaner water and safer water by thinking beyond the pipe, thinking upstream, throughout the watershed, even uh, up above like in other states, like Maryland is sending $30 million upstream into Pennsylvania and um, Delaware and uh, New York uh, because they're investing upstream, but they're going to benefit downstream in the Chesapeake Bay. That regional interplay, I mean, that is sort of part of, can you briefly describe the, the states get together regionally? Because obviously the water doesn't stop at the border of each state. And so there needs to be flexibility, but there are a lot more interregional collaborations with these collaboration and conflict which is why you need to get together because of uh also the case in the air you know the air shed you have upwind downwind states uh but in water uh, both quality and quantity uh you you need to be, be getting together so there are a lot of regional partnerships on water you know, for the Great Lakes, my goodness, that is a great example of interstate collaboration. You know, sometimes it's to protect water quantity. You know, if you're going to try to divert water out of the Great Lakes, you need to get all eight Great Lakes governors to sign off on that type of project. You know, that's called uh, collaborating to protect their precious resource. But it, but there are a lot of examples and those examples are going to grow partly out of desperation and vision but also as a legal matter, you know, the trend towards um, whether you call it the major questions doctrine and some of the recent trends with the Supreme Court uh, more and more and for the foreseeable future, it's going to be up to states uh, and states acting on a regional basis to accomplish some of these regional collaborations when it comes to water and wetlands. Um, unless Congress is very explicit and changes the federal laws and provides more authority. And that, that can always be a tricky and slow process. So thanks for asking Linda. Thank you, Ben. That's really helpful. And, and um, we, those interstate issues, particularly with, with supply. And I, I learned from Dave's podcast that uh, the Great Lakes has, I think 21% of the world's surface water. So that is a, a huge, huge area. So um Anyway, I was uh, becoming a secretary of environment out in Arizona. They, in Arizona, they said, now we presume you're coming with a big, long straw 
help us get some of that Great Lakes water. And exactly. on that front and many others, I proceeded to disappoint them. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. But um, yeah, the, the Western water issues are a whole nother thing that we're, we're not quite delving into today, but boy, um, but thank you. Um, we'll circle back when, after we talk to our other two panelists, thank you so much, Ben. And with that, I'm going to turn to Christine Boyle. Um, hi, Christine. Hi, Linda. Um, just wanted to switch gears here and follow up uh, on um we, we talked about some innovations with green infrastructure, but um, working at Xylem and before that at Valor Water, um, I, I would love to hear more. We would love to hear more about kind of how um, the, the, your idea, I, I'm always very um, just blown away by, by innovators um, and visionaries that create things, but how your idea when you were a doctoral student became Valor Water and um, how kind of how that process came along and and um, and just a little more of your experience there. Well, good question and thank you. And I am so happy to have followed um, Wayne and Ben and especially when Ben was talking about um, kind of building more support and funding for innovation. I was I was cheering in the in the background. So um, so I was at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, um, you know, being a, a good doctoral student and, and studying. And I was also doing work um, as a research assistant with the Urban Water Consortium, which is a group of the, gosh, it was it was eight at the time. It might be more now, but major water utilities in the state of North Carolina. And um, I was studying uh, water economics and data science, which wasn't called data science back then. But essentially, we got our hands on um, just a, a wealth of water utility data, mostly um, anonymized customer billing and consumption records, and just started to play with the data. And as part of my research assistantship with the School of Government, ended up coming up with a set of analytics that during the drought in North Carolina, which was 0708, which was really helping utilities understand the relationship between um, the drought and customer usage patterns, conservation um, as well as their um, ability to be uh, financially sustainable. So fast forward, I moved to California in 2011, and lo and behold, California was in the midst of a major drought. And so, you know, what when I kind of transferred myself and, and this body of work over to California, what I found was Water utilities, um, with whom I'm very active with through um, American Water Works Association, were in a, a time of crisis. Not only were they uh, didn't have enough water, but they didn't have enough money, and because they didn't have enough money, because the you know the the state rightly so was was telling them they needed to um, reduce their water sales because of the the water crisis. And so this conservation conundrum, which um, I believe Janice Beecher kind of coined that phrase where you sell less water and therefore you have a financial crisis was alive and well in California. And from there, Linda, the light bulb went off. I started a company. I licensed the technology from University of North Carolina and um, began that journey as a um, kind of entrepreneur and, and innovator. So cool. And I mean, the water supply issue is is not going away and, and um, it's creeping east, in fact, it seems. So um, I think your technology will continue to have um, 
applications. And um, building upon that, just I'd like to hear a little more about water analytics and digital mm-hmm. water and how um, it can address, you know, ways in which the the technology can address the big issues of supply and then also um, water quality and things like that. If you can just touch that. Uh, yeah. Um, so right now, so now my company was acquired by Xylem in 2018. And now I um, develop a whole suite of digital products at Xylem, which are in use all over the world. But this idea of digital water is, is kind of has a number of steps. First of all, um, we instrument our water system. So a pump, a pipe, a valve, a meter now are sending little signals to your, either your cell network or diff, or a, um, a radio network that's saying, here's how much water I'm pumping. Here's the water quality and temperature at this point. Here's all this data that's that's now available to water utilities. And that is the first step of digitization is that you're just instrumenting your system so that you have way more knowledge about what's going on in your system. And then from there, you aggregate the data. That is uh, an, the understatement of the of the century because that's actually really hard, but 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 from there, you can start to um, actually measure things. So interestingly, like let's just say that you're instrumenting your stormwater system and you have a major storm, which happens all over the world. We, we have a big system in South Bend, Indiana, where during a major storm, they used to not know where that water was going. And lo and behold, it used to combine with their sewer and um, flood into the St. Joseph River and cause all these terrible um, water quality outbreaks. So when you instrument a system and then you gather the data and then you apply models to it, you can actually control things during storm events. You can control pressure. You can um, understand what's going on during a storm or a shortage and therefore make things better, such as opening a valve so that the water can go a certain direction or increase or decrease pressure. I don't know if this is all too techy nerdy, but I hope it's, you know, kind of telling this picture. If you have control in real time of your system, then you can help make your customers' lives better um, and save water quality, such as like really toxic um, um you know, sewage overflows and things like that. So that's that's the promise. And there's a lot to it within that because um, creating those models and the models being accurate and getting our uh, operators and vital water utility staff members to use these is takes a lot of work, but that's it's the future. And places like DC Water are embracing it. Um, thank you, Wayne and, and team. Um, and so it's part of kind of the the next wave that we're all we're all part of. Amazing. Um, quick question: cost. Um, yeah, what, yeah, yeah I, I, that's always the big question because, um, as as mentioned earlier, we don't have unlimited funds for, and we've got crumbling infrastructure and things like that. Yeah. So, what, what would a system like this? I know it's it depends upon the size of the utility, but but what would the cost be? Well, so the way we when we when we work with utilities, like you know what's really expensive, Linda, are is digging up the ground and laying like massive amounts of gray infrastructure, like massive pipes, treatment plants, um, you know, underwater storage facilities. So that is massive. Like when Wayne and I was just you know at DC Water, you know, he manages a multi-billion dollar capital budget. So 
utilities are used to spending massive amounts of money on what we call like great infrastructure. So if you introduce nature-based infrastructure that, that Ben was describing, if you introduce sort of a system of, of sensors and, and technologies, what we're trying to do is actually reduce the overall cost of investment into gray infrastructure um, by by instrumenting things and doing them so that you don't actually have to spend so much capital on pipes and um, massive storage facilities. So, you know, as far as what, how we price things, we always do it based on value. So if like, if you're going to save, um, you know, if you're going to save, let's say $10 million, most of that we want to go back into the the pockets of ratepayers. Um, but we're, you know, we'll take sort of the value of that, but it's always based on the fact that there's a massive savings and benefit to the to the utility because at Xylem, like we're very invested in water affordability and water equity. So we're actually really working hard to like drive down the overall price of water management. That's good. That makes sense. It's sort of a, a, a cost, but provides far more benefit than than the amount given. Um, quickly, before we segue to Dave, um, and we can touch on this we can follow up on it a little later in the roundtable, yeah. but uh, digital water and smart technologies in water, it does make the system or it can make the system potentially more vulnerable to hacking and things like that yeah. from cyber. And so just wanted to talk about some of the measures to kind of protect or mitigate against those attacks, the more digital a system gets. Yeah. So um it's it's true. It's something that utilities are, are and the federal government, you know, through some of the the preconditions that they have for funding um, through WIFIA, like require very high levels of cybersecurity um, um, implementation as they should. So there are different ways you can do that. We, you know, you can. A lot of things these days are um, built in the cloud. So in the old days, it used to be that basically utilities would have these bunkers with server rooms. And so like these were sort of closed systems like air pocketed in and, and all data that controlled anything was in those server rooms. Some major critical infrastructure still is, but more and more we're using the cloud and we rely on you know Amazon, Microsoft, Azure to work with us and create sort of um, locked down, um, highly, highly, secure ways that we can work in a cloud environment. Um, and then what we do is we just, we have these things called penetration tests where we're we're constantly attacking our own systems, which sounds weird, <laughs> but um, that's what we do so that we can, we can, we're attacking our own systems all the time so that we can make sure that that these are lockdown systems so that, you know, hackers and, and, and bad actors can't get um, access to critical infrastructure, even if it's in the cloud. And, and we've been pretty successful in the utilities that are taking it extremely seriously now too. So whether you're DC Water or San Francisco or a smaller utility, you're running those systems too, so that many, many, many different groups are attacking our own systems <laughs> to make sure that, that the bad actors can't get in. Thank you for that. Really instructive, really interesting. I'm looking forward to coming back to talking more about technology and digital water with you in the roundtable. Um, so I'm going to switch gears now and move to, to Dave. And um, hi, Dave. Welcome. Hi. Uh, and uh, Linda, you put me in a tough spot coming after. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> 
I know you'll rise to the occasion though. So we'll, um, I want to talk about the water values podcast. That's kind of, I mean, it's so such a fun, uh, you know, and I'm used to just only listening to true crime podcast. I must say yours is, is interesting. It may not, (laughs) and it, it, it compares well to, to the more kind of traditional entertaining podcasts I listen to you, you have, um, some great folks on, but, um, I want to, you know, so much of what we hear is, as I talked with Wayne and the other panelists about in, in the water world is, is quite negative and, and dire, you know, real life or death type issues. Um, and so I want to just get a sense, um, since you've had 223, I think, at episodes and, and also in addition to your day job with water utilities, um, you have a lot of a, a breadth of experience in this area that's that's um, probably unique. And I, I would say, are there things, positive developments, kind of positive trends you see on the horizon or really interesting technologies and things that folks are doing in the area of water that that are kind of exciting and and give you hope, I guess, for the future? Well, absolutely. I think one of the biggest sea changes I've seen over my career of 24 years practicing in the utility area has been when I when I first started, the the common wisdom was that utilities should just keep their head down, stay out of the press, and not if if you're not in the press, that's a good thing. And I think that has changed dramatically over the years, where utilities are now out front um, and trying to engage with their customers because really. If you think about it, utilities are one of the few areas that our citizens engage with every single day of their lives. And so I think utilities are taking advantage of those touch points and interacting with their customers more. I think they've done a great job making that transition. There's still room to improve. You know, I know D.C. Water has done a great job, uh, especially when George Hawkins uh, first came over and David Gaddis has continued that. Uh, with their DC and Christine mentioned San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. You know, there's all the stories about the the they how they put your number two as our number one on the buses that are going by and just trying to have more public outreach. And I think that is a good thing to let our constituents and our customers and stakeholders know that their utilities are in their corner and doing you know making investments and providing these basic critical infrastructure services. Um, some of the, you asked about some things that, that make me hopeful besides the public outreach uh, aspect, some of the technology, I think I'll, I'll just give a broad category and that's, I'm very excited about the machine learning predictive analytics because I think that will help utilities provide even better service. And a lot of what Wayne, Ben and Christine have talked about was hey there's there's not enough money we have we have a hundred dollars of need and only ten dollars to do it if I may steal a uh, an analogy from one of my recent guests uh, and so we need to deploy that ten dollars that we have as efficiently as possible and use it on the most critical infrastructure so really it's it, the technology will help us develop better asset management strategies so that we can continue to invest in the right assets to ensure continued service um, to our to our customers so that's that's really the 
the core when you when you get down to it, what I'm very hopeful about. That's great. Thank you. Um, and I, I also want to touch upon your uh, unique experience with both uh, the water sector and the energy sector and um, and talking about utility engagement with customers. Um, the corporate structures of, of both of these utilities can be different. Um, and, and maybe could we learn a little more from you about uh, the ways in which these these structures and these utilities are run, the way, ways that they are converging as well as diverging and kind of what what the ideal, you know, the, these are both kind of customer service and users and they're coping with the same issues of equity and, and climate change and things like that. But just if you can touch upon kind of compare and contrast with where these two industries are going and where they might be able to work together as well. Sure. Well, in the, in the energy industry, uh, there are a lot of big energy companies. Electricity is a lot easier to send over a long distance than water is. Water is much more fragmented. Uh, it's more localized because uh, water is heavy. Uh, again, stealing from another uh, past guest, uh, water costs a lot of, it takes a lot of energy to move and pump and store. And so water is, is much more localized. Um, that being said, I do think that we are going to see uh, more convergence happening in the space. I think as regulations over these small water systems increase, it makes it you know, compliance much more difficult, which ca- will cause them to seek out economies of scale by combining with other systems, looking for other efficiencies. And I think technology will have a lot to do with helping find those uh, efficiencies uh, in combining systems, uh, things of that nature. But we've already seen the convergence start Really, this is the second wave since I've been practicing. Uh, back in the late 90s, a lot of energy utilities started acquiring water utilities. And I don't know what it, what the, the, the impetus for that was. My suspicion was electric utilities thought that deregulation was going to sweep the nation. And if they acquired water utilities, they would have an easy entree to sell power to. Uh, the the classic example I dealt a lot with was uh, DQE acquiring Aquasource back in the day, and they've since, since divested that. But the second round of convergence, I think, is a little different. I think they are leveraging technology to get more efficiencies. We, In the past couple of years, we've seen the formation of essential utilities uh, with People's Gas and Aqua. Uh, we've seen Eversource and its acquisition of Aquarian. And we've seen Nextera just recently enter the water space uh, with the formation of Nextera Water and a lot of its uh, asset acquisitions down primarily in Texas. And so I think we are we are seeing a new era of convergence, uh, and I think it's going to leverage technology to help provide better service to our constituents. Great, thank you so much. I think you know we're almost at the twelve. 12- 30 point. I want to get started with our roundtable and we're going to continue having having this discussion. But because of so many issues, I'm writing down a lot of um, issues that that are shared by um, by, you know, across the, the industry as well as across policy. So I just wanted to kind of 
have time for a discussion on those. And um, I'm going to start with a really easy one, <laughs> which is, I'm being um, a little facetious there, climate change, extreme weather. And I'd like to kind of hear, um, I heard a little bit from Ben about green infrastructure, but sort of what are you seeing? Let's let's look forward and um, kind of what are you seeing in the future in this area and how how can we do things better? You know, whatever, however you want to comment, but I'll start with with Wayne. Um, or Ben, Ben, let's start with you. Yeah, let me, uh, David, the uh, point you were making about the convergence, you know, 20 years ago, the, the phrase kept being uh, water is the oil of the 21st century, uh, not just battles over quantity, but quality. And this whole energy water nexus has been growing uh, over the last 15 years. And it's now where all the, not all the action, but where so much of the action is. And and those of you who are in the water world need to keep focusing on connecting the, the dots and the drops and the watts because energy water drives our daily existence, right? And so with climate, uh, the water world in, in the, oh, let me just say in the U.S., um, has been looking at the, the the two big aspects of climate are one is mitigating greenhouse gas emissions, pollution prevention, reducing the carbon pollution. That's mitigation. The other is adaptation, how, how you adapt to, to changing conditions and risks given the, the inevitable uh, in, in more extreme weather you can reduce the impacts, but how do you adapt to it? And in the water world, the basic point, Linda, is that climate change is water change. And every water manager, every company that's involved in in the in the IT world, in sensors, in monitoring and tracking results, and increasing durability and resistance uh, resilience has got to be focused on the water uh, sector as one of the Achilles heels for communities. Uh, so uh, for me, uh, I can say wearing my ECOS hat for all of the states and the District of Columbia, which is a, an awesome uh, engaged innovator and, and uh, leader. Uh, the key is advancing uh, climate strategies and water strategies together. And so there, there are tremendous opportunities at every state I mean this truly, every state recognizes the value of cleaner energy. They need, they need different strategies and schedules for it. And that water is fundamental to the cost uh, of generating and delivering energy. And so every energy policy matter needs to have water embedded into the discussion because that can often be the the the, the greatest challenge wh- whether it's quantity or quality so a lot of states are doing more and more on wastewater reuse not just not just to generate to, to create more water supply but also to get closer to the zero discharge goals the more you reuse the less emphasis you need the harder the the clean water act NIPTI's permit uh, challenges are. So it's the, that is an, a really important component of climate and water is, is uh, reuse and innovative approaches to reduce the amount of 
water that's used in heating and treating and transporting it, and also reducing the amount of energy. And states like Maryland have launched an energy water infrastructure program, providing grants specifically to wastewater and drinking water utilities to save energy in order to reduce the cost of, of treating and cleaning water to use relying more and more like, like uh, uh, DC water uh, and, and blue plains, you know, using renewable energy uh, to help uh, reduce the carbon footprint that helps. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. That's awesome. I mean, I could, we could talk about this um, all. It's so exciting and, and I'm, you know, you're giving, starting to give me hope. <laughs> this, oh, good. <laughs> hope a guy named Grumbles. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and Wayne, let me just, speaking of Blue Plains, and um, I, you know, it's all, often, uh, uh, I think, uh, Congresswoman Kaptur mentioned it at an energy and water appropriations hearing as being, you know, something everybody needs to see. It's really a, a, an example of um, because water utilities do use so much power and and turning to renewables. If you can talk a little bit about DC Water's efforts in that area, that'd be great. Yeah, that's a great. Uh, thanks, Linda. And I was I was smiling behind the camera here when David was talking about the the water and energy utility segmentation. And I think that one of the things that we've been fortunate uh, to to be in a position is and 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 think about every day is that we're we are a utility uh that has both energy and water so uh we're we're already bundling those things <laughs> it's it's integrated into integrated into our operation and so you you know the the comment that was made about uh the the, the generation or or the demand that a facility like um that blue plains uh requires we we are the number one energy consumer in the district of columbia um that's that's pretty significant and so every every effort that we can make to reduce that uh certainly helps to many of the many of the points that ben had raised earlier is is reducing that carbon footprint is 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 very significant as you think about the region of DC and and what DC's ambitions are around uh, reducing its carbon footprint. Um, so that being the case, we we currently, and again, I think it was the foresight of of leadership, uh, are generating for our use uh, about thirty three percent of of the energy uh, needs is generated on site. And so we're 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 taking advantage of a resource that otherwise would have been disposed, uh, and through our uh, combined heat and power facility, you know, turning that not only into um, a power source but also turning that into a product that can be marketed and and bring benefit uh, benefit to the ag community or or our transportation community as it relates to. Uh, augmenting what's needed for restoration. Uh, so, you, you know, I think that there are, um, uh, you know, th that intersection that that was mentioned is is very critical, not only as we're thinking about the long-term impacts, but the day-to-day -day impacts of of how we look at operating operating our business. We will sh we will soon be uh, a net zero. 
um, uh, operational uh, footprint for our combined heat and power system. So as we think about the amount that we invested in that system and the amount that we're not only reducing costs from a transportation standpoint, but the, the, the marketing of the, of the material, we're soon going to be uh, a, a net even uh, for, for that facility and for that investment, which is, I think, uh, fantastic and hopefully will lead the industry in looking at systems like this in, in that perspective. Thank you. And I, I realize I need to see, I need to go out and tour Blue Plains. <laughs> she urged uh, Congresswoman Kaptur said everybody should see it. So it's, uh, I've seen it from the outside, but um would be great to to see how it works. Um, and Christine. Bring me up, bring me up and we'll. I will, uh, we'll, uh, I will take you we'll up. up. <laughs> yeah. Um, Christine wanted to get your thoughts on on technologies, um, either digital or otherwise, that might be able to um, address some of these uh, extreme weather and climate change problems faced by the water industry. Yeah, it's oh, it's such a vast question because we know, just like Ben and Wayne have said, that that uh, water, either the overabundance of it or the scarcity of it, basically. Um, is some of these changes that we're seeing with our, our water cycles. But as far as technology goes, there's there's a lot going on. Um, ben mentioned reuse. Wayne mentioned um, carbon neutrality. I think that there's really interesting technologies for um, advances in kind of storm incident response and, and energy ma- and uh, incident management and event management, like we've seen with being able to um, model along with weather data, combine, you know, real-time weather data along with real-time operations to better control flows during storm events. That's a huge deal. There are a number of companies, including ours, that are doing that. And, you know, you couldn't highlight enough what what we saw happen in Florida. There's a lot of activity going on around coastal communities in particular about sort of the digital um, uh, management of storms. But I wanted to, since we have a lot of policy friends on the the line, I thought it'd be interesting to sort of point to more of the mitigation technology, which in the European Union has passed a number of um, very recent carbon neutrality laws for especially focused on urban wastewater. So we see that um, urban wastewater does emit a lot of methane, nitrous oxide, and things like that. And of course, whenever you have the emission of um, gas, you have an opportunity. So there's a lot of capture going on around um, um, nitrous oxide and also um, nitrogen capture going on around wastewater facilities. And 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 Wayne, you know, maybe you could comment about what I think you did about what's going on with that at, at Blue Plains. But the the EU is really quite far ahead um, of where we are in the U.S. At least at a federal level of mandating um uh carbon mitigation and gas mitigation around wastewater plant facilities and so xylem is very involved in how we capture that how we um use different technologies to both capture package and allow that for for resale as well so kind of a couple different examples for you linda that's great thank you um and dave just uh, with the i don't know if you have any anything to add um with and maybe the nexus again with with energy and water as as relates to extreme weather and climate change and any technologies or things in that area. Well, well certainly a couple of points. Uh, first, 
when Wayne was describing Blue Plains, I, I think my bet is that the Blue Plains facility is it wasn't just constructed just because it would be a, a decarbonization effort. I bet if you're not saving money now, you're, the pro forma show that you are saving money over time. So it's not just a decarbonization issue. It's the, the Blue Plains is saving money for customers. And I think Xylem actually just released a report recently called Net Zero, the, mm-hmm. the Race We All Win, where it shows that decarbonization efforts by utilities, in most instances, at worst, are an, do not have a uh, negative revenue implication. So they, in most instances, they're going to save money or at least come out net, net zero in terms of the cost of the utility. And so there are lots of opportunities for utilities to save money today by pursuing a decarbonization strategy. The other thing is that in the infrastructure or excuse me, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, non-taxable entities are now available to claim the investment tax credit and production tax credit for clean energy technologies. And that is going to open up a huge opportunity for municipal utilities, other non-taxed utilities, such as cooperatives, to take advantage of implementing these clean energy strategies and decarbonization strategies uh, to implement, you know, solar, combined heat and power, and other uh, clean energy options at their facilities. Great, thank you. Yeah, and I'm I'm too familiar with that <laughs> direct pay portion of the IRA, um, but it, it's a, it's a great thing in that it extends it beyond the the taxable entities. So, um, thank you for that. I want to switch gears, and we may revisit um, climate change before we're done. But into um, to equity and and water pricing and and kind of. Um, Dave, on one of your podcasts, you were interviewing, um, I think his name was Kendall Dix, talking about the traditional rate structure. And, and Christine touched on this earlier, um, where you have uh, the amount of water sold is is the you pay for, for the amount of water consumed. And that sort of structure um, not only is is hard when there's drought conditions on the on the water utility, but it's also um can be far more onerous on those who are less able to to afford um, paying for it. So I think he was arguing, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, more of a public, uh, you know, it would come directly out of taxpayer funds. In other words, the individual ratepayers wouldn't be responsible and it would come out of of, uh, public service. Um, Could you expand a little more on that and and talk about maybe is there some sort of middle ground or and I'd like to hear from all the panelists about this but certainly so what what Kendall was uh, promoting was a regime where residential users would pay for the water out of their property taxes essentially and com- commercial and industrial users would still pay your traditional rate regime and the argument is that that would be a more equitable way to get people to pay a more a fairer way people would be able to pay more in line with what their income is if you live in a really nice house that's assessed at a high valuation you're going to pay more than if someone who is not living in a uh, as nice of an area and the the other on the back end so that that 
is the customer facing piece on the back end for the utility facing piece. If you assign the revenue requirement out of tax revenue versus user fees, it's a more stable revenue source because if your revenue requirement, let's say, is a, let's just pull a number out of the air, is a million dollars that you need to recover from your residential user. If you put that on the tax rolls, you're going to get pretty close to a million dollars. There may be some delinquents and you can put a lien on the property. But if you're recovering that million dollars of your revenue requirement from user fees and people don't use as much because you're you've increased your rate, then you have a big hole that you need to fill in your revenues and that may require you to raise rates. So that's, that's what Kendall was, was arguing for. Um, and it's, it was a unique uh, and out of the box way of thinking about it. I think that from a technology perspective, we are seeing a lot of adoption. We're having, we have much more data now than we've ever had before about usage, time of use, things of that nature. And I could, I could definitely see uh, a situation where rate designs are take another uh, evolution to be more equitable in the, in how the end user rates are determined using this new generation of data that we're collecting rather than kind of what I'll refer to the old analog way we, that have, rates have been set for 80 years, you know, customer assistance programs, uh, which Wayne discussed earlier, are one aspect of that. Lifeline rates mm-hmm. would be another uh, way, and I believe DC Water has lifeline rates. Uh, so that's those are those are two kind of equitable considerations. But I think technology is going to allow uh, more data to be involved in the rate making process and rate design process that could lead to uh, some more creative rate design opportunities that utilities can implement. And thank you, Christine. Um, I know you you have done some work with um, the technology and water pricing, and with respect to equity. And just wanted you to comment a little on on what you know there. Yeah, it's um, it's complicated. We know that for sure. I think that you know in energy they move towards decoupling rates from usage. Um, and put some of the onus on um, the utility to implement a lot of kind of efficiency and conservation measures. I think on one hand, there is a danger in, you know, we use price to send a signal about use. You use more, you pay more. And so there is a certain danger if you decouple that, you know, oh, you're just going to have this beautiful lush lawn in the middle of Nevada, which is now illegal. So you actually can't do that. But um, so, you you know, I do believe in using price as a signal. Um, on the equity and affordability side, however, I think that that we can actually think about a rate structure that, you know, achieves sort of the blend of financial sustainability, affordability, and a conservation signal. But we can blend that with much more proactive and ho- perhaps even non-ratepayer funded customer assistance programs. Like, in California now, there's a drive that because of some legislation there, um, there it's illegal for users to subsidize one another. And so with that, the state is now stepping in and saying, okay, maybe the state has a role to play in customer assistance. Maybe we need to make customer assistance less of a, you know, a um, red tape bureaucratic nightmare for low-income families and just make that a little easier. And maybe the state can step in, maybe, and the feds certainly are stepping in with 
their um, water assistance programming now. So I think that rates have a place, a role to play, like I said, but I think that we need to introduce more assistance that's in, that's that's not tied to the, the the rate program as much, but just getting assistance to those that need it when they need it and and helping and and perhaps that's an approach we can use um, to to help increase equity and affordability. So. Thank you. Um, Wayne, just I, I know you you live and breathe this every day and you did talk about equity a little bit in our opening line of questions. If you want to comment. No, I, I appreciate the insight, David, that you that you brought in, Christine. And I think that um, we we do uh, continue to to scan how industry is looking at developing these new these new structures um, and and are, are very empathetic to the pressures of many of these very large infrastructure programs that that we are you know required to deliver and so the you know the one example and i think it was referenced earlier around the gray infrastructure is uh you know the the two two and a half three billion dollar clean rivers program that that were uh in the middle of of, of executing uh granted that has brought a, a tremendous community benefit to the Navy Yard to the wharf area. I mean, those are areas that have just, if if you're familiar with DC, have just exploded with development, um, making it a, a, a you know a very desirable place within the district to to work and live. Um, that uh, that is primarily funded by our ratepayers. Uh, we, we've had a little bit of federal funding along the way, uh, which is which is fantastic. We always appreciate that. Um, but it is, but it has really, from if you think about the equitable aspect of of how that has really impacted our community, uh, you know, there are many dis, disadvantaged parts of our community that are paying for that, uh, but are not really receiving the benefit of it, um, uh, you know, tangibly. Um, and so, you know, we're continually trying to balance balance that. Um, and I think that I think what I'm really excited about, and I know Linda, you were you were uh, kind of casting doubt and and uh, around the, the 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 prospects of the future. But I'm really excited about the 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 funding that that is now available uh, to to uh, really address many of these challenges. Um, and and finding ways to bring that funding um, outside of what the the ratepayer is currently providing for for the district to to handle many of these challenges. Um, that that's what I'm really excited about. The IIJA uh, certainly is is unprecedented, uh, not only from a from a climate perspective, but also from a uh, from an infrastructure renewal perspective. Um, uh, so I, I'm really excited about what what the opportunities are uh, to to address these challenges. I, I don't think it's technology. Um, I, I think that we are we are breaking down tremendous barriers relative to being innovative and leveraging what's available te technologically wise. I, I don't think that it's knowledge. I think that we have very talented. Um, partners, uh, NGOs that are weighing in on a variety of things, whether it's policy, whether it's regulatory 
you know, perspective. But I do think it's funding. I think that that's the that's the constraint for us as a utility, um, so as to bring an equitable product to to the community. Thank you for that. Um, and and Ben, I just want to maybe not as much about rates for you, but but hearing about uh, your thoughts on equity, you know, kind of figuring out how to address greatest need, needs is a big issue with with respect to clean water and maybe some environmental justice aspects at the at the state. Yeah, level. sure. Yeah. But but I, I do have to say when we're talking about water affordability, every politician. Every policymaker needs to understand the difference between price, cost, and value. So the price of water, the water rates that people pay is different from the actual cost in delivering clean and safe water and managing it. And the value proposition, Dave, I'm speaking your language, the value of water is the more uh, we embrace the notion that water is a fundamental human right, it is at the it's it's at the top of the water equity and environmental justice component. Not not just clean and safe water, lead free and and uh, contaminant free, but also uh, reducing the flooding in in areas that don't have that are underserved, as well as being overburdened by pollution. And so, to have sustainable management of water, to recognize the value of water and recognize that people are not willing to pay what water is worth. There have to be more, there has to be more funding. It doesn't have to be just from the federal government or the states or the utility. There are also innovative partnerships, public-private partnerships, private capital. That doesn't mean privatization. Um, but really putting more money, recognizing the increasing recognition, the value of water equity, the need for uh, more equitable access to clean and safe water, because there's a fundamental human right to it. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic. I know with all the funding, the, the emphasis and the public discussion, they're going to, there are more partnerships that are forming around the country and states around the world. It's very important. And, and every state is looking at how they define disadvantaged community, how they in, in the establishing their um, intended use plans under the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act, uh, how they put more emphasis on underserved communities, how they define them in the, at the state level. Uh, and it's not always urban. It's often rural communities. This is really one of the most important components of any public discussion on water is how you increase access to the environmental benefits of clean and safe water and uh, use funding from government and and funding outside of government to really uh, better do a better job recognizing the value of water. That's great. Thank you. That kind of ties, ties it all together. And um, I'm looking at the clock and we only have eight minutes left. And I promised at the outset to be respectful of everyone's time. So I think we um, we could probably have three more sessions on this and four, but um, I, I want everyone out there who's listening and watching to know that we we will have more, I think, um, webinars in the area of water focusing on, on these important issues. Um, but at this point, any last words on, we haven't even gotten into lead and PFAS and other things, but I, I 
you know, would like to kind of end on a hopeful note. And you all have given me a lot of hope uh, with respect to the future of water and, 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 um, and technologies to address it and innovative policies. But if anybody would like to add anything, now's the time. <laughs> Maybe as the, as the technologist, everyone here, you know, is familiar with technology, but I think something really important to, to me about technology is that it's like, you know, going back to a famous political quote years ago, but it's the people it's silly. Like, let's just say that like technology is nothing without people. We have to, that when you think about how we can leverage technology and some of the mistakes I think that have been made, it's because we need to be on the ground working with the operators at DC water. We need to be on the ground working with our citizenry. We need to be on the ground, educating people, not about just technology, but the value of water. So whenever I think technology, I try to think right away about people and making sure that people are educated and that technologists are working with our really, um, you know, our soldiers of the water industry, which is our utility professionals too. So just want to make sure I put that out there as, as a technologist, I think the most important thing are humans. <laughs> so I'll, 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 I'll have that be my closing note. I like that. Yeah. It, we're, we're not obsolete. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> So anyone else before? I couldn't have said it any better. I just, I appreciate everybody's perspectives today. It was a great conversation. And thank you, Linda, Christine, Ben, and Wayne. It was great being on this panel with you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you all. I mean, this has been just delightful. Thank you, Linda, for, for, uh, for, for facilitating. Appreciate it. Oh, you're well welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks to my panelists. Agreed. Yep. Agreed. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Bye. Cheers. Thank you. Now you know why it was such an honor to sit on that panel with Wayne, Christine, Ben, and of course, the ringleader, Linda. I learned so much listening to my fellow panelists, and I hope you did too. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about that panel discussion. Please check out the show notes page for information and links on the episode. Just Google the Water Values Podcast and click the first link that comes up. That takes you to our home on the web, which is on Bluefield Research's site. Again, Bluefield Research and the Water Values LLC are not affiliates. We are simply... uh, separate entities that have a joint marketing arrangement. And as part of that, Bluefield is kind enough to give us a home on the web. If you still use Twitter, you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water value, water values. You can tweet at me using my handle at DTM one nine nine three. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. And you can sign up for the newsletter at that landing page as well. Thank you again for tuning in and I hope you make it a great day. Plus I want to give a huge thank you to again, to our sponsors, uh, sponsors of the Water Values Podcast include Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black & Veatch, Trinex, Mentor APM, Woodard & Curran, and Intera. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And again, thank you for listening and for subscribing to the Water Values Podcast. I truly appreciate it. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.
listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.